Happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, David Cervantes, uh, founder of Pinebrook Capital Management. David, welcome to Forward Guidance. I follow your work on Twitter. You are a great uh, economic and markets analyst, and you've got real skin in the game. Just tell us quickly, uh, you know, briefly about your background, but also what do you trade? I take it you're, you've not been someone who's been calling for a recession. You've not been someone who's been bullish on on bonds, but with the huge move up in yields, that that might have changed. So just tell us uh, about who you are and what, what you trade, as well as your views. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I follow your work, and it's proud to be a, a guest here. So just a general background, hybrid capital management. It's a personal holding company, investment vehicle for some personal funds, as well as that of some friends and family, my children's trust. It's a small circle. I'm not looking for or taking outside money. So it's just kind of, it, it, this helps keep me focused on on the research and not the marketing. Secondly, in terms of what my background is, my, my core background is in uh, fixed income sales. I've done a lot of cross asset work as well, but the, the core is fixed income sales. And with that, to facilitate that and also just kind of work on my interests, a lot of the macroeconomic analysis, that's kind of, for me, the starting point for how I approach the, the problem set, trying to understand the, 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 the cycle, the economic cycle, importantly, the policy cycle, not necessarily from an electoral standpoint, but just how the, the nuts and bolts of public policy impact macroeconomic policy. Got it. So when you, are you trading like rates, futures, any options, ETFs, any single stocks at all, or, or all macro? Yeah, so generally all macro, I don't do a whole lot of single stock work that's just outside my bailiwick, focused on the big pictures and I express those views primarily through the rates complex. So the treasury yield curve, I do a lot of futures for the most part, in part because it's just very liquid, basically a 24-7 or 24-5 market for the most part. And there's obviously a lot of leverage with that. Do trade some ETFs, do a lot of option spread work. I, d- I dabble here and there in the volatility complex, although that's that's more of a kind of a, a punter's game for me. It's not a, a core competency, nor is it how I make my bread and butter. It's kind of like if I see a, a fat pitch, occasionally I'll take it using option spreads on some vol- some on, on the UVXY ETF. But beyond that, I don't get into volatility futures or anything more complex than that. So what have your macro views been over the past year? I guess we wind the clock back 12 months close to a bottom in stocks around 3600 3650 and then bonds were also had also sold off a lot too and bonds rallied i think into about january but then the bond bear market has really accelerated over the past 7 months so what yeah what have your, your views been on on stocks and bonds and the economy and how does you know, your view on the economy relate to your, your view on stocks yeah. So I, I, as I mentioned, I approached the problem set by trying to understand what's going on underneath the economy. Rewind to 2022, rates were mooning, mortgage rates were mooning, uh, mortgage spreads blew out a little bit, housing market transaction sales really froze up. And we just started seeing general weakness across the economy. If you recall, we had two uh, consecutive quarters of almost uh, zero growth. And, and I think that kind of got everyone's recession flags out there, myself included, to be honest. If you go back to September, October 2022, I was on recession watch. And then I I, I I started going back to the housing market. There's a lot of commentary about, oh my God, this is now the, the same setup for that we had prior to the global financial crisis where it's the housing market is going to take down the economy and we're kind of all doomed. 
So I embarked on a uh, research project to try to understand the interplay between the housing market and the general economy. What I found was that seven out of 11 post-war recessions originated in the housing market. So that was it. You know, that, for me, that was like, oh my God, we're going to go to this. This is right. We're, we're heading down that path. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, as I got into really the nuts and bolts of, of national accounting and how, the GDP accounts and understanding not just the, the actual accounting, but going into causality and understanding linkages, it, it basically dawned on me that it wasn't necessarily housing sales or housing uh, uh, transactions that had the economic impact. That was just paper shuffling. That's kind of like trading stocks, right? When you mm-hmm. when you buy a share of Apple or sell a share of Apple or whatever, no, there's no there's a wealth transfer, maybe, right? Someone might make money or lose money, but there's no real wealth that's being created for the real economy outside of maybe the wealth effect, and that's kind of dubious itself. So, going back to the housing market, the real economic activity was in construction spending and construction employment, and back in the fall. Those numbers were actually at all-time highs. They were they were just moonshotting. So it dawned on me that without having a turndown in the that part of the economy, that if we had a recession, it wasn't going to come from the housing market. And if it wasn't going to come from the housing market, then we had to look somewhere else. And although there was pockets of weakness in other areas, such as manufacturing and industrial production, I'm sorry, not industrial production, manufacturing, it wasn't going to be enough to bring down the economy. We really needed housing as a as a economic vector to really just go down the toilet, and that didn't happen. So I went off recession watch in uh, November 2022, and from there I built my thesis on okay, well the the, the cycle might be soft, but it's not going to roll over. Things started picking up again. Economic activity started picking up again late December, early January. My, my work into the housing linkages led me to, well, what's, why, why is, despite mortgage rates shooting to the moon, how is it that employment and construction spending are, are at all-time highs? How, how is that happening? And there was obviously a few angles to that story. One was the supply chain backlogs, where they just, there was products that weren't finished due to lack of supplies, and they needed to be finished up. The other part was there was just a, there's a secular housing shortage. I, mean, I don't know what the number is, but it's big, and it's kind of a. I think at this point now, it's kind of a, a well understood phenomena that, for a variety of reasons, we are facing this massive shortage in housing. So then I got bullish on the housing stocks, and those just those just really took off. I mean, they picked up in October of 2022. The market was obviously. I was not ahead of the market. The market was ahead of me, but I was able to catch part of the uh, part, part of the tailwind of that and get along with the housing stocks. And then at that point, the yields started coming down. Saw that as a tailwind for the economy. I think the, another big aha moment was when the Mortgage Bankers Association (MBA) came out with a fixed residential investment forecast back in February of this year. So going back to what happened with the economy. Fixed residential investment, which I just as an acronym called FRI. FRI had collapsed by about thirty percent late last year. And that's just construction of new homes, or what was it? The answer is it's mostly new homes, but I'm sure it embodies some renovations. But for the most part, that's new homes. 
fixed residential investment. So that number had collapsed about 30%, give or take, and shaved off about two, about two percentage points from GDP. So the big aha moment at that point in early 23 was, look, this is a real drag on the economy. If it, with all that being just totally annihilated and nuked, things don't have to get marginally better. They have to get marginally less bad. It's like mm. the economy was running with lead weights on its ankles. So I figured if, if things can just stop getting bad and stabilize, we could face some, some acceleration in the economy. And that's in fact exactly what happened. NBA was forecasting. And of course, his forecasts are always, they're always a little off. But the way I figured it out was if even if we just got half of the improvement that they were forecasting, we would get a tailwind in economic activity into the second half of, of, of this year. And that's exactly what happened. Stocks took off, yields kind of found a bottom and started slowly moving up. Mm-hmm. And and then yeah, things in the stock market went kind of bonkers late spring, early summer, pricing in the acceleration that 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 in fact took place. So to, to answer your question, yeah, I was never, I was I was I was cautious late late last year, got optimistic, and then got pretty bullish early this year, and and rode that for a while. Nice. And was that ride more being long stocks, overweight stocks, or more on being underweight bonds or even short rates? The answer is pretty much not even paying a whole lot of attention to the rate markets. I did take a mm. a short in twos after the SVB. mini banking crisis. Yes. Yeah, back in the, back in March, I wrote a thread on that on Twitter. It just didn't seem realistic that that would be enough to take down the economy. So I, I shorted twos. Did pretty well in that position. Did that twice, and then pretty much stayed away from the rates market until midsummer. I started looking at what rates started moving up. I forgot where they bought them, but. On July 21st, I published a, a long note. If you want to look at, if anyone wants to look it up, it's it's called the bond market's keeping it real. The talk was, if you go back to the rate hiking cycle, it was that inflation kind of got out of control. The, the Fed had the tiger by the tail, and there was going to have to jack rates up. And, and, and in order to, to stop inflation, the narrative or the, the belief was they're going to they're going to kill the labor market and kill the economy, and we'd be in a recessionary ditch. And as I was watching yields go up, I took them apart. I took them apart. I took apart the the nominal yield curve um, and looked at uh, real rates, term premiums, um, and came to the conclusion that the driver in the in the in long on the long end at least was was not inflation expectations. Inflation expectations were anchored and 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 not doing a whole lot. We started seeing disinflation in CPI and court and PCE. That start, that started to accelerate in the spring. So I said to myself, why are why are rates starting to moonshot if 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 inflation is coming down? And the causality was at that point real yields. Real yields were starting to pop up. And 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 that reflected the strength in the economy that I was able to get in front of it and anticipate. On top of that, there's a few other dynamics. And of course, the the monetary transmission mechanism, real rates at some point do start to respond to Fed hikes just by arithmetic composition. The, the real rate will move up. So, I mean, it's, it's complicated, but effectively it's it's real economic activity, strength, incoming supply, QT, and effects from from, from the, the Fed's monetary policy. So reals were starting to moon up. And then I took, it, I took a big short at 
when the yields were at 378, I went I went short the 10 year and rode that to about 418, covered that short in early August. And as luck would have it, I did really well on the housing stocks, rode, rode that. And at that point, with rates were where they were, it, it kind of started feeling okay. We we've we had a big fast move up. This is not going to go unnoticed by the equity market. And coincidentally, I was also going on vacation, so it was kind of a confluence of factors. So I got flat equities in mid mid August. So it got completely flat. Covered my my bond short, and went on vacation. Nice. And so it was kind of a. It was it was it was a combination. I'd say maybe some insight, maybe some luck, or both. And then I was on vacation, and I'm just obviously I'm, I'm watching things, and I started noticing that nominal GDP was getting really hot. I tweeted about this. Measured by it, what? Measured just by what's reported by the BEA or the private forecast is the answer. Okay. Yeah. So the the annualized rates were looking between nine and ten percent. So. That is not a sustainable, that's not sustainable in terms of the productive capacity of the economy and in terms of, it also runs contra to what the Fed is aiming for with their monetary policy. They're looking for a nominal GDP of somewhere between 4 and 5%. And in August, we started running around 9, 10%, which is just, I mean, completely bonkers. What do you think it's actually going to be? Do you actually think it's going to be nine and ten percent? I didn't know that the forecast. That, that's 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 an annualized one month rate. Mm-hmm. So the it's it's not going to be. I don't think it's going to be anywhere near that. But my point in pointing that out is that it it shows acceleration. So the economy, the rate rates are moving up. The economy, despite the move up in rates, is starting to, starting to get hot. Stocks were still boiling hot in mid-August. And to me, it just seemed like there was going to be two opposing forces that would have to be reconciled. And that would be the acceleration of the nominal economy and what was happening in, 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 the, in the rates complex. And I tweeted publicly on 9-1, September, September 1, that this would mean a couple of things that meant that monetary policy was not tight enough. Despite rates being at all-time highs, monetary policy, which is completely separate from rates, rates are uh, a part of monetary policy. What do you mean rates were at all-time high? You mean like 20-year high or? The, oh, sorry, the, the Fed, Fed funds. Yeah, yeah. Fed funds was, was, was at a cyclical high, right? Yeah, so yeah. they're at, they're at whatever, whatever they were, five and change. So so everyone's thinking, looking at, got their eyes on rates as being the expression of monetary policy, but that's only one element of monetary policy. Monetary policy is a lot of things. Rates is a blunt tool. It's a big, heavy tool, but it, there are, there's a lot of other things going on. What else other than the balance sheet reverse repo? Well, yeah. So there's a balance sheet. There's a monetary oper- monetary operations, open, open market operations. There's think, forward guidance is your show. Mm-hmm. Monetary policy. The dots are monetary policy. Those are, are, are really sta- not you know, the forward guidance is, is not a forecast. I think people think, oh my God, the Fed said this, that's that, and they're, they're crazy. It's never going to hit. And I, I think people conflate the dots with a forecast. It's not a forecast. The dots are a statement of intent. This is, it's, it's kind of like, I don't know, you, you tell your kids, if, if, if some, with some hyperbole, hyper, hyperbole, you make a threat. If you don't clean up your room, you're, this and this is going to happen, all these horrible, evil things. So, right? so they definitely don't call it a forecast, but don't they use the same term as for Atlanta GDP? They say, this is not a forecast, but it's an estimate. Do they use that word? 
estimate. Whether it's whether well, that's, fine, but you know, if you're splitting hairs between estimate and forecast, right? Yeah. The, the point is, it's neither of those things. The point is, it's statement of intent. And getting back to my my um, hypothetical here, you, tell, you you threaten your kids to clean up their room, or you do X, Y, or Z. Obviously, you're not gonna you're not gonna you know you're not gonna hang, you're not gonna you're not gonna literally rake them across the coals, but your your threat is supposed to reflect an intent, and that is that intent is clean up the room or something bad's gonna happen. Even if it doesn't mean you're gonna rake them across the coals. So I think similarly with forward guidance and and the dots, people conflate these things for estimates, forecasts. They're none of those things. They are they are statements of intent. They are they are goals. They are things that those are they are desired outcomes, right? So anyway, going back to my tweet on September first, monetary policy was to, if you have an acceleration nominal GDP, I don't care where rates are, it's too loose, right? It's just. It, it's by definition you cannot have an acceleration in, in, in nominal growth with 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 that with a restrictive policy. If, if your if your policy is really restrictive, it's not going to accelerate. Yeah, for no, nominal growth going from six percent to ten percent, that is policies too loose. But from like zero percent to two percent growth, maybe you want it to be too. Loose. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, it, but it's 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 a cal it's a something a, a tool to calibrate growth. And to to calibrate a specific goal, and in this service, in this case, if there was any symmetry between what was happening and what the goal was. The goal was slow the economy down, get soft land it to five percent nominal GDP growth, and here it is. It's it's kind of mooning to not nine ten percent. So once they, one point I made was that monetary policy is too loose. The, the follow on consequence of that is that the yield curve would have to reprice and par- parallel move up. Of course, there's some folks that call it a you know, bear steepening. That's also appropriate. Mm-hmm. But if you look at a graph, it, there was a, par- a parallel move up, shift in the curve. So that's exactly what happened. The mar- rates marked out with a shock. And then at the September FOMC meeting and the release of the new dots, the, markets were, the, the rates markets went bananas, right? They, they said, oh my God, the, the Fed is super duper hawkish now. Right, but instead and- of new hikes being priced in, as has been the story since the first hike in March of 2022, instead of new hikes being priced in, new old cuts were being priced out. So the the, the market doesn't think that the Fed is going to get to 6% now. I think it's still a less than 50% chance that they hike in November or December. So the market still thinks that the Fed is actually done. They're, the marginal tightening is, and I know you know this, I'm explaining for the audience. Yeah. The marginal tightening is coming out from cuts that the market thought they're, oh, we think they're going to cut 200 basis points. Oh, no, actually, we think they're only going to do 100 basis points or, or four cuts. And then the long end is just going bananas. Correct. And then on top of that, they raise their growth forecast. They, they raise their growth forecast, but even more important than that, they raised, I'm sorry, they lowered their unemployment forecast back in the March tw- 2023 summary of economic projections, the dots, they were looking for, I believe at the time, U3 unemployment was around 3.45. They were looking for about 4.6 unemployment. That's a change of 1% or more. That would trigger the SOM rule. I don't know if you're, you're, yeah, some of your listeners are familiar with the SOM rule. It's basically the exact rule is if we get a 50 basis points increase in unemployment within 12 months of the most recent low, it's a, it's a, it's a trigger. It's a recessionary trigger or signal, not a trigger, it's a signal. And we got 30 basis points move in August, right? Or for Ju- July. It was released in August, but 
Well, it would, no, the SEP was released in September. So what I'm oh, getting at was... Forecast. I'm talking about the actual data. The Yeah, so the, the actual data got, got released in, in, in... Well, we already have the forecast for the unemployment rate was lowered. Instead of... So back in, back in March, when U3 was 3.4, 3.5, they're calling for 4.6. That's recessionary. So at that point, recession is 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 deemed to be the optimal policy path to get inflation down. There was basically, at that point, the Fed is saying, this is a recessionary forecast and we're cool with it, but we're, we're going to go with it because that's going to get get us the price, the, the price stability mandate. In September, they lowered the unemployment rate forecast to 4.1. I think that was a, something that was, was not discussed a lot. Mm-hmm. Now the new... Even though the actual unemployment rate had gone up from three five or three four to three eight, three seven yeah three seven three eight they're, they're saying now we only expect a marginal increase of four point one percent, which is not recessionary. Okay, so now the new Fed policy posture is getting back to what shocked the market was the, the shift in what they're really saying the the meta message, not not the message on the dots, not the message on at the press conference. The meta message, the message under underneath all of this, and that was, we're raising our forecast. And by the way, we no longer project a recessionary labor market, which is which means growth. So, what the Fed, which, which is it's great news for 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 the for the business cycle, but it's not good news for risk assets because, as you said, it kicks out the, the rate cuts. It kicks out anything that was priced in. So the market was caught flat-footed. Definitely bad for the bond market. Yeah. Horrible for the bond. Well, horrible for all markets. I mean, if you look at equities, they've been smoked since then too, mm-hmm. right? So, so once you, once the, the the long end started doing a lot of the heavy lifting uh, of pricing these things in, equities started selling off, getting more volatile. And then after that, the ten year was off to the races. I actually shorted the ten year again. Yeah, I was going to ask when you got back from vacation. I got back in at four twenty two to short, and at that point we were getting cl- we were getting close to the CPI and the PCE. I, I made a bad tactical call and covered that short. I made a profit. I covered at 427. So I mean, I, I squeezed out five bips. But I, I got I was a little early in that call. And by the time CPI and PCE came out, this thing had already moved to uh, 450 and changed. I was expecting PC, PCE to be soft. So I took a small little punt position. What, what I mean by a punt, it's not, it's not a, obviously a core strategic or a tactical. This is kind of just like a YOLO gamble. Took a small trade. Didn't work out when it gets me. Held it. And actually, a couple of days ago, once the 10-year hit my 475 target, which I publicly tweeted about back in August, I believe it was August 18th, I tweeted that I would get long duration at 475. We hit my target a couple of days ago, and now I have a full proper long position at 475. I'm sorry, 474, but whatever. 474. And that's a, it's a good yield. Obviously, it's not 1981, whatever, 15%, but it's a yield where if yields up go up to 5.75%, you're going to lose money. Someone who's long at 475 is going to lose money if they go to 575. You get a little bit of that protection because you're being paid. Whereas going from 1.75 to 5.75, I mean, that's just you're getting crushed. So it's it's you feel like you have a little more safety now. I don't really don't see it that way except as a trader, right? I mean, yeah. if you're a, if you're an asset allocator or, or an investor, it's probably a different proposition. But as a trader, I'm looking at rates of change. I'm not looking for 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 that kind of margin of safety. So I mean, I'm making a very calculated probably a high risk, taking a high risk position that for now, 
we've hit a, an inflection point and we should see, given this, the, the, the magnitude and the speed of the move up, we should see some pullback on that. And just also consistent with now, I think the rates, that that rake height is going to start to 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 bite. Reels also publicly tweeted, I had said that Reels would get to about four, between 250 and 3%. On the 10-year? On the 10-year. Yeah, so, those, so Reels is inflation adjusted. So it's the nominal rate that everyone talks about. And then factoring in inflation break even with the market is pricing for, for inflation. Between Reels hitting my kind of... My my real my my bogey on the real side, and then nominals hitting my my bogey on the nominal side. I took a position and and went long. At that point, reels could become restrictive, slow down the economy. I do think we Q three was bonkers in terms of economic acceleration. Nothing goes up in a straight line. So my call was is not just it's not your typical technical technical analysis view of oh my god rates went up they're going to come back they they keep going up that's not gonna that's not gonna the move in itself is, means nothing for the for the future direct the forward direction. My call is based on okay, reels now at pushing two fifty are going to start to bite. Q three was somewhat of a of an ex- ex- acceleration anomaly. Four should provide some some get will get will be some there will be some payback in the growth speed. So it's 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 a non recessionary slowdown. Some folks might panic about it. We might come in with says that, that we're looking at. Atlanta GDP 4.9% real. It's I don't think it's going to get a I don't think it's going to stay there. I think it's likely going to pull back. And it's the, it's whether it goes to 3 or 2 is not the issue. It's the it's the it's the marginal rate of change. So if we go from 5 to to 3, that's kind of a, a big deal in terms in of GDP or real GDP. Uh real. Real, real okay, yeah. So th- that so if we see a a pullback in real, that that will pull down nominal yields. So it's just really, it's really just kind of the interplay, the, the the interplay between real nominal rates of growth and how that's expressed in the bond market. So now I'm I'm tactically long. So far, it's working out, and hopes and prayers. <laughs> well, it's been working out for two days. So you got long like for two days ago. Correct. Correct. That's why I said hopes and prayers. Yeah. So we're going yeah. on Thursday, October fifth, and October fourth was a rally in the bond market. October third yeah. and. So from September 22nd to October 3rd, it's just, it's just been absolute mayhem, a sell-off. And so how do you track the economy? There's so many different pieces of economic data. The ones that are somewhat conclusive, like real GDP, they only get reported for, for once a quarter. And then there's estimates and there's, there's real GDP. There's the Federal Reserve reports all these estimates. There's the labor market, which everyone says is lagging and you know, probably is lagging. But there's I feel like then there are a lot of economic models and pieces of data that you know, it, it, it's a reading of, it's a, oh, this reading is 40. What does, what does 40 mean? It's 60. What does 60 mean? And like the, the PMIs, purchasing managers indices, that it's my understanding of 2019 and before had a somewhat good track record of a PMI of 60 above 50 is growth below 50 is contraction. So if the PMIs are 45, 44, 43, that's likely indicating that a recession is on the way and that it's time to buy bonds. But that has sent an ultimate false signal this year as recessions, PMIs, were declining from for have been for over a year and bonds continued to get wrecked. So how do you track the economic data? Which which do you say, oh, this is actually a good reading, this is a good reading to pay attention to, and this is actually a very overrated economic indicator that a lot of people are buying bonds based on this economic indicator, but actually it's a it's a false signal. It's 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 giving a false signal for X or Y reason. 
I, I prefer to approach the problem set with what not to look at. Yeah. That, that's a lot easier to do. I, I think it's very easy to get caught up in kind of indicator craziness. There, there's a lot there. And every indicator is, I guess, you got to just treat differently based on the regime that we're in. And I think the PMIs, because they're, a lot of them are survey-based, a lot of the soft data was kind of impacted by the supply chain, right? So if you talk, look at, if you speak to supply chain managers, you know, you had these bullwhip bull whip effects where they hoarded supplies and then they got, their inventories got blown out and they're now they're short on supplies. Now they're short on sales. So you had this kind of really neurotic supply chain cycle that impacted the PMIs and made them generate the false signals that you mentioned. They were just became unreliable for, because of the supply chain. The supply chain effects were real. I, I think, I, I think people, when the Fed was back in 2021 saying, oh, this is transitory, it's 2020, it's, the inflation is transitory and we're going to get over this once we get some supply chains. And then inflation mooned, the, the Fed had some egg on its face. And all of a sudden, supply chains became a, a la, kind of a, 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 a laughing stock, kind of a punchline in a joke, in, a, in an economic joke. Suddenly, supply chains were like, oh, no, no, it's, it's all M2, money growth, and the Fed, the Fed printed money and... We got inflation, just like Milton Friedman said, and 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 supply chains became like a punchline. Yes, but it, it it over reversed too far, maybe. But a year before that, it was oh, supply chains, and what what are you talking about? Don't pay attention to the M two. I'll I'll get back I'll get back to that. But my my point is that getting back to the false signals, I think people started putting on start started kind of dismissing the, the supply chain impact, and didn't take that into account when assessing the signal strength of the survey data, not realizing that the survey data would be distorted by these bullwhip effects in the supply chain. So getting back to what do I, how do I track the real economy? It's, it's more art than science. I just, I'm probably a little older than most of your viewers. I've been doing this for a long time. And it's one of these things that you, you pick up th through experience and, and also through formal study and mentorship and people teach you. But yeah, there's a lot of nuance, I think, that needs to get explored in asking these questions. If, if you kind of stick to an indicator-based framework, which I think could be, it is useful, but if you stick with a, a straight indicator framework, you're going to get a lot of false signals like we've gotten in this cycle. So to answer your question, it's really about exploring the nuance, trying to understand what is different and why it's different. So I was able to get the supply chain bullwhip, approximate and how much I should discount on that. Also looking at all the stimulus money, the IRA, I mean, the amount of money we're, we're running around 8% GDP deficits. De yeah, 8% GDP deficits. That, that's just like, this is like monumental, gargantuan amounts of money. This is like World War II style deficits. And the amount of fiscal money, you, you can moralize it all you want, say it's bad and we're doomed and sustainability and, and all this. It's stimulative. It's, it's stimulative. Which, which may or may not come to pass, but it's not gonna, it's, it's for this cycle, for the market that I'm trading, it matters. And it matters that when, you, when you've got that many trillions of dollars circulating in the economy, it's just going to be very hard to have a recession. Yes. And if the Federal Reserve is buying all of those bonds that the US is issuing to, to fund its deficit, then rates could go down maybe or not even go up. But if the Fed isn't, then who's going to buy the bonds? Well, that, that, that's a separate argument. Yeah. My point is that when you got that kind of money slushing around in the economy, you got to remember a, a public sector uh, deficit is a private sector surplus. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so when when the government's borrowing that kind of money, that amount of money, it's going into the private sector. It's a, it's effectively a, a short term wealth transfer. So yeah, that kind of money being pumped into the private sector, you're not. It's unlikely you'll get a recession. So whether the, again the Fed and you know, the dollar and all this other stuff, but you can argue that you're blue in the face and have fun with it. But in terms of the cycle, it, is, it, it means this is, this is stimulative money, as you said. What do you think the deficit is going to be for 2024? I think a lot of it has been the Inflation Reduction Act, but I, I talked to Vincent Delaware, who said a lot of the deficit, he shared your similar, similar view on the economy, that a lot of the deficit for this year was things like the stabilizers or cost of living adjustment in the Social Security, as well as tax brackets not going up, but people's earnings going up. And that so so but and those things are going to change in 2024. So this the fiscal deficit may be a little bit smaller in next 2024 than this year. Yeah, I think it'll be a fiscal drag. I, I have no idea what it's going to be. But it's not the, the impulse will not be as strong. And that kind of bakes into my call for slowdown going into the year and maybe the, the, the first few weeks, maybe a month of, of, of Q1 next year. So the answer is, I don't know the number. I know it's, I know it's smaller. So again, as a, as a trader, I, I don't want to get bogged down all these little details. What I want to get bogged down is what's moving and when is it moving? Mm-hmm. That's how I make money. That's how I make money. So you think there's going to be a slowdown and that's why you're, part of the reason why you're, you're bullish rates. How, how bad do you think the slowdown will be? Because I mean, so many people, macro analysts and economists on the, the TV channels and on this program have forecasted a, a recession for over a year now. And I like to say Bloomberg recession probability a year ago was at 99% because of, I presume, a series of back tests that have a lot to do with, oh, the last time rates went up this much, there was a recession X percentage of the time. And we had an inverted yield curve. All of the signals were pointing to a recession. Do you feel comfortable sticking with your no recession call? Or are you actually a little bit more worried about uh, the, the economy than you were I'm not. I'm not worried about a recession in, in the next three to six months. Is the answer okay? A slowdown. A slowdown. The answer is yes. I don't re- see a recession. A lot of these recession forecasting models are heavily, heavily weighted on the yield curve. You take it apart. They look at the yield curve as an input. And 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 to your point, it's a it's a sample of n. I don't know. N is n n n of seven or n of six, yeah. whatever. So the, the the yield curve is a is a signal. It's not causal. The yield curve, an inverted yield curve, does not cause recessions. Uh, inverted yield curve tells us where inflation and the policy rate is today and where it's likely going to be tomorrow. That is it. What it does not cause a recession. Now, do you know, because that goes back to my premise that rates are not monetary policy. Rates are a part of monetary policy. There are other inputs into monetary policy. So there's a kind of a fallacy of composition in thinking that the yield curve is causal when the yield curve is not itself monetary policy. It is a part of monetary policy. So why so, is the past seven times there's an invaded yield curve, it was followed by a recession, and why might this time be, be different? If you, if you could just go back to every recession, well, the last one we had was obviously pandemic, so yield curve didn't even invert. Yeah, uh, did, yeah, did. There, actually, there was a slight inversion, yes. Yeah, so a, a slight inversion in 2019. Yeah. But you know, it, lasted for, it, wasn't, it wasn't persistent. I think it lasted for a few weeks. It was not persistent. And you can make the argument that had to do more with the repo market back in August of, of 2019. So, so yeah, it, it inverted for a you know, few weeks. And then if you go back to the housing crisis, that you could there, there, that was really a that was more of a financial panic because the, the the banks were effectively bankrupt, and then you had oil at 140, and the Fed was panicking, thinking that this 140 oil would turn into inflation, when in fact the Fed should have been cutting, not raising rates mm-hmm. back in 2008. 
or seven. But you know, you can look at every single recession and find external shocks. The economy was it was probably slowing, but then you had kind of a, a window of vulnerability and an external an external shock had nothing to do with the yield curve. But why is it? I know that with a sample size of of so so many things, there's obviously going to be one indicator that says, "Oh, the the stars have aligned every time before the president has been elected" or something something like that. But it, it is pretty interesting that the yield curves have inverted and then and then and then flattened or, or uninverted before every recession. And normally it is a a bull bull flattener, excuse me, a bull steepener. Now we're having a bear steepener, which is interesting. This, this could be different. I'm not. I'm not saying you're wrong. No, all I'm saying is it's a very powerful indicator, but it's not causal. There, there, there are two different things in terms of the mechanics of the economy. It's an, it reflects what's happening in the economy. It doesn't cause what's happening in the economy. So anyway, going back to these recession indication or with with causal correlation with causality. That right there tells you that the fallacy of composition is real. These models all fell flat on their face because of that fallacy of composition, of correlation not being causality. And we, we just had to experiment in real time with it. Yeah, and I think one of the times the yield curve, could, if it is a false signal, is because rates have gone up so quickly. And you look at like the 210 inversion, and it was like, 300 basis points of inversion in 1980 or 1981, just because Volcker raised interest rates so quickly. So I think, you know, that is that is different. And, and the long end needs time to adjust. And maybe the long end is adjusting now. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And then also there were shocks back, if you go back to 81, there was, there was another oil, there was another oil crisis back in, in, in 80. I'm old, I'm not that old to, to have that much recall. But you know, I, I do remember being a kid going to going to the store and my mom back, back when back when this doesn't happen nowadays, but back then, parents sent their kids to the store and said, hey, pick up some milk. <laughs> and and I do remember when I was a kid, I'd, I'd lay out a bucket, four loaves of bread, and then now, then a year later, lay out a bucket and got two loaves. That, that is seared into my mind. And, and it's funny. I think that's why inflation is such a four-letter word, because these experiences, whether you're young or old, kind of like the depression babies, these experiences get really seared into your mind. And so there was a real energy shock that permeated the economy back in the early 80s, to your, to your point. But anyway, going back to how do I look at, how do I get the ebbs and flows of the economy? So sir, we covered the, the survey, the soft data, why, why the, what the problem was there. We covered fiscal policy, why that was stimulative. We covered the yield curve being in, in, in an indicator, but not causal. Yeah, I just, I just I really just spent a lot of time looking at things. Looking at in this case, this is a this cycle is not credit driven; it's income driven. So get the nuance, right? When do, in one cycle you're going to focus on on credit, another cycle you're going to focus on income, another cycle you're going to focus on something else. So in this cycle, I'm focused very much on nominal income, nominal spending, nominal wages. Workers saw one; they got they got a generational boom in nominal and real wage appreciation. Okay, so this is a this is a a, a income driven cycle. Nominal for sure, but did weren't real wages for a pure negative last year because the oil went up so much? If you look beyond the cycle, this this is a, and uh, Jason Furman has done a lot of work on this, and so is uh, um, Justin Wolfers. But fine, let's just say they weren't real. What drives the economy day to day is nominal spending, not mm -hmm. real. When you, you when you get a trade wrong or right. You settle in nominal when you make sure. your your mortgage yep. payment. You settle in nominal. So, so fine. Let's just even we'll, we'll get we'll give the, the the real the real thing 
we'll get that one to go and let it go away. We'll call it a wash. Yeah, push. N- n- nominal spending is nominal yeah. income is driving nominal spending, yep. and that is very strong. So I'm li- getting back to your question. What am I looking at? So in this cycle, I'm looking at nominal spending. I'm looking at nominal nominal incomes. They're doing great. And then we see that expressed in the labor market. We got initial claims data. We got continuing claims. I mean, these these things are just rocking. So I'm looking at, I guess the, the way, I guess instead of saying, I look at A, B, and C, and this is always right, and this is how I'm going to do it, which, which, which is what the indicator, indicator crowd gets wrong. I say, okay, I've got to line up what I'm looking at with, with what's happening in reality. Otherwise, the indicator framework, if you don't contextualize it and look for the nuance and know what to look for, you're, you're going you're gonna to miss the forest for the trees, so to speak. Yeah. Did you think that indicator crowd also are overemphasizing the rate of change? In other words, if wages were going up 7% and now they're going up at 5%, they view that as a decline. But 5% wage growth is actually still really bullish for the economy. That, that is, it's not just, not just really bullish, it's probably borderline inflationary, right? They, the Fed wants, they, they want nominal incomes to slow, right? They, that, they, they, that is part of what they're targeting. Um, so the answer, but get back to your point, yeah, 5% is, is booming. So I, I think the, the emphasis on, on the overemphasis on rates of change without contextualizing it leads to some, 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 some bad estimates. I'd agree with you. Yeah, three percent growth to one percent growth—that is close to a recession. But thirteen percent to eleven percent growth is not a recession. It's still a boom. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, but just for the viewers out there that say, "Well, how am I looking at things?" It, I think it's it's again, it's not it's not formulaic where I'm looking at A, B, and C. I mean, I'm looking at the mechanical linkages, but it really, things really need to be contextualized, and that's been kind of one of my themes on on Twitter, where you got to really contextualize things, put them in their proper place. With what's happening in, in 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 monetary policy, fiscal policy, the economy, labor markets, demographics, technology—I mean, all these things come into play—and and you need to kind of have a contextual yeah. framework for understanding these 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 things that are happening. So, if you're bullish bonds now, are you bullish stocks? It's it's not really. I, w- I wouldn't make it so digital where I'm bullish this, negative this. It's more of like I see an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. As a trader, as a trader, if I say bu- I'm bullish this or, or bearish that, that kind of locks you into a narrative, and that's how you lose money. But right now, you're you're bullish the tenure. Tomorrow, that could change, obviously. But yeah, so for now, so for now, I, I think between rates kind of overshooting to the upside, and I expect some slowing in the economy, I think there's an opportunity to for me. I, I am opportunist, opportunistically long the, the tenure. I'm not excited on equities right now because equities, they, they price in a lot of nominal growth. And if nominal growth is going to slow, then it's, I think there, there's, equities are going to be probably range bound for now. Yeah. One, one thing that's also really interesting is that for three quarters in a row, there's been annual declines in earnings in the S&P. But you know, that decline was Q4 last year, one of this year and Q2 of this year. But throughout the entire time period, the stock market has been on an absolute tear, I, I guess because forward earnings expectations for Q4 this year and 2024, 2025 have been super rock solid. So do you, I mean, do you think a lot of just a, like the, the, the rosiest narrative has already been priced into stocks or a very rosy narrative, I should say? Yeah, on the earnings side, things look optimistic, but they're also very concentrated, right? It's all kind of the mag seven, the technology. A lot of other sectors are not doing so great. So, in the aggregate, sure, I, I think you, you do have a rosy picture. But if you go beneath the surface and look at the look look at the market sectorally, no, it's not it's not so great. But 
again, I don't concern myself with that. That's as a macro trader. Uh, yeah, I'm not really. I'm not really looking to see where, where healthcare is or where energy is. Yeah, it's just not my not 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 what I do. Uh, I look at the aggregate as as a macro trader analyst. I look at the aggregates. So in the uh, yeah, to your point, forward earnings are concentrated farther out, and you know they are what they are, and maybe they'll come down. Maybe maybe they'll get maybe they'll go higher. I don't know, but for now, I'm not just given what happened in the rates market. I'm not terribly comfortable being heavy, heavy long equities. Maybe that will change, but that's not, the time is not now for me at least. Hmm. Do you have a view on the economic impact of the banking systems contraction of credit, but very, very slow levels of growth of, of credit of, of loan growth? If this were a credit driven cycle, one would think maybe that is a, a severe drag on growth, but you said it's an income driven cycle. So I mean, how much are you paying? Are you paying attention to just lenders kind of pulling back a little bit? And I mean, come, I mean, admittedly, we came off the biggest year in loan growth ever in 2022. I'm not really looking at that because, as you said, it's an income-driven cycle. So it's not the income is going to drive the cycle. So I'm not really worried about what's happening in the in the in the loan in the loan world. As far as consumers, their balance sheets are rock solid. Mm-hmm. I forgot what the number is, but it's a big number of people that don't have mortgages. I think it's 40 percent that own their house outright, which is crazy. And then for the other folks that don't own their house outright, there's a lot of untapped equity. So if push comes to shove, there's a lot of untapped equity that can be accessed. Now, now granted that that cost of equity is not cheap, but the rates where they are, if you had to tap your home for as an ATM, it's going to cost you. There will be a haircut, but it's there if you need it. And I think that is a, a, that is a huge buffer. So I'm not really looking at paying attention to 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 the bank loan growth. So when you look at the impact of rates going from zero to five point five percent on the short end and two percent to to close to five percent on the the longer end, what is the impact of that tightening? There are folks who say one hundred percent of that tightening has already been felt and a recession is imminent, or one hundred percent of that tightening has already been felt, but it's not enough, or we haven't felt the tightening yet and there is going to be be a lot because a lot of firms refinanced at very you know, long duration. So they're, they don't have to pay back till 2026. I mean, are we, we're going to have to wait till 2026 to have the full impact of this tightening? The maturity wall that people talk about, I think is a, it's a feature, not a bug, right? Kind of like the way homeowners locked in low mortgage rates where they're not really feeling the pinch because they're just, they, they have these, lo- these low mortgage rates locked in. The, the maturity wall when it comes down to refi, that's a 2025 problem. I mean, for all we know, we can be a recession. And, I have, and again, it's not a recession call, but this is just a problem that's so far out there that it's just it's just not a factor for me, in, my, in my opinion. Gotcha. So other than being long the tenure, do you have any other positions that you're looking at? The answer is not a whole lot. I mean, 80% of what I do is asset allocation, 10% systematic rules-driven, trend-following, mean reversion-type trading. It's automated. So only 10% of what I do is discretionary macro. So that takes up obviously the most of my time because it's not automated. But you know, I, I don't put 80% of my chips are on, on passive asset allocation. And that's pretty well diversified. Just set it, forget it, rebalance a couple of times a year. And that, that is what it is. The returns are what they are. And in terms of what I'm looking at, I'd probably be, I'd, I'd probably like to get ta- tactically long equities around mid, mid 3900s level. That, cor- that corresponds to right. I think the average the average forward PE on equities is around seventeen point five percent. Thirty nine mid mid thirty nine hundreds represents, assuming no major changes in earnings, 
represents about a 13% correction from the July all-time highs, represents 17, a 17 forward PE. So right around there, I'd probably be willing to take some risk. Got it. And any views on international stuff or mostly focused on U.S.? Most focused on U.S., but I'm liking Mexico has been booming. I like Poland, the story on Poland. I don't know a whole lot about it, but it's, it's something I'll be looking at. Japan, I've been pretty long for a few years now. I told our friends at Wisdom Tree, DXJ ETF is fabulous because it's a dollar hedge, so not have to worry about the dollar shenanigans. It's done great. It's beat out the competitor unhedged ETF. So I like Japan a lot, and I think Japan is, is set for a secular boom after being in a secular bear for 35, 40 years. What about China? China for now, look, I think I don't, it's just such an opaque market. I think if you have good information, given what's happened, it might be getting attractive. But I just, I think from a, a secular story, they they have some issues. I think they, they've had a big, a big pullback post basically COVID since they've been on the struggle bus since COVID because they're, they're shutdowns. They've got some demographic issues. I think like half of their youth is unemployed. People with educations can't get jobs. So, you know, the answer is China for me is not an investable market for what I for what I do. And but then asset allocation, are you making a decision of, oh, actually, I was 100% in stocks. Now I'll be 90% in stocks, 10% in bonds, just because the long term forward returns for bonds are so much better. So my framework for managing that is kind of the way insurance you know, insurance companies do it. So I do have an asset liability approach. So I, I target certain markers in their life that they have defined liabilities that I'm going to try to meet and meet without having to worry about so I can sleep at night. So I, 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 don't, I don't take a expected return focus. I take an asset liability management focus on that. And that's just, I try to set the weights and let them play it over time. Makes sense. So what would you say is an economic indicator that you pay attention to that you think is underrated? You think PMIs in this cycle currently are overrated? have been overrated. What do you think is underrated? I think nominal GDP as a macro target is way underrated. And the reason that is, everyone looks at real GDP. Everyone says nominal factors in inflation. Inflation is bad. And it's not, it's like, well, it, inflation has, has its place in a, in a fiat-based economy. And the reason, and, and nominal, we, we are, we live in a nominal, we live in a nominal world, not a, 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 a real world. What does that mean? It means your wages are nominal. It, what you take home, what you go to the store and pay pay for gas and food with is nominal. What you go to, what how you pay your mortgage that's a fixed that's a fixed liability. You pay your 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 your, your mortgage with nominal dollars, not real dollars. Yeah, literally so, everything is nominal. There's nothing in yeah, this world so, that is real. So so I, I look at nominal. I think the the the, the whenever we go through an economics program, the, the the focus on real, and I think that's that's important for living standards. That's important for long term kind of secular public policy issues. But I think for day to day, I think nominal is way underrated. I'm a big fan of ditching inflation targeting by the Fed. They should just get rid of it. They should target nominal GDP, not because nominal bakes in real and inflation. Well, wouldn't that just mean you should have inflation? Wouldn't that try to maximize inflation? Because like, I bet Argentina has a very high nominal GDP. Yeah. So no, that's not, that's not, that's not the, the premise. The premise is that monetary policy can't really affect real growth, right? It, it doesn't really, it, it can manage the ebbs and flows that lead to real growth, but it doesn't really in the long run really matter. I, I never said maximize. Yeah, yeah, I okay. said they should target, target okay. it. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's your, so in other words, they should set a target, right. say it's 5% or 4% and stick with it. Mm -hmm. 4% would be too, too real, too inflation. And that's it, boom. We can measure that month to month. And if there's any deviations from that, they can use their monetary policy tools to calibrate it in real time or mostly real time. 
instead of futzing around with we're targeting real, we get it, we get we get real, then we get adjustments to real six months later, and we get these dots that are way in the future that really are they're not estimates, they're not forecasts, they're statements of intent. But again, it's it's just not real time. So I think I think if we set a target, if the monetary authority sets a target and hits it consistently, policy will become more credible. The business cycle will flatten out, and I think we'll just all be better off for it. Got it. That's an interesting idea. So one of my final questions, David, is that you said you talked about inverted yield curves and whether or whether or not they correlation or causation. You made an interesting point, but often inverted yield curves they end. It's very rare for in the post world, post nineteen fifties world, for a curve to stay inverted for many years at a time. They either end with a bull flatten, excuse me, bull steepener, so short term rates going down, Federal Reserve cutting rates or a bear steepener of a long-end rate selling off. I, I think bear steepeners have actually been... A, a bear steepener to exit a yield curve has been very rare. I, I don't know if it's ever happened, uh, but, but but definitely very rare. What? How do you think this ends where we have an inverted yield curve? Is it because we have a bull steepener where the Federal Reserve cuts rates or a bear flattener, excuse me, bear steepener, as we've had, where just the long end continues to sell off? I have no idea. And neither does anyone else. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, know, I know that's anticlimactic, but... Yeah, as a, as a trader, I, I need to hold myself to this kind of stuff because that, that's how you lose money, right? You get locked into like, oh, what's going to happen? I have no idea what's going to happen. I can guess what's going to happen in the next three months. Look at look at look at what I'm looking at to to help me understand if I'm on track or not. But honestly, I, 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 no one has any idea. Yeah, that's a great question. And just because seven out of eight times it's been a bull steeper and not a bear steeper, that doesn't mean anything. It means nothing. Yeah, the the, mar- the market has no memory. We have memories. And we conflate that upon the market, but the market has no memory; doesn't care. I don't know if it means nothing, but yeah, the the market doesn't care. But <laughs> but it's there's circumstances that caused it to be seven out of eight times. It could be random, but but yeah. Anyway, so um, yeah, I was gonna yeah. say. So what would have to happen for you to change your mind and say, actually, nope, there is going to be a recession. I guess in that case, you get even more long long bonds. So what would have to change your mind to to get more long bonds? It's structurally long. Or change your mind and say, actually, I think that there's going to be no lending at all, and five percent of the ten-year is not cheap. Yeah. So the way my framework is, the, the economy left to its own will self-moderate and find an equilibrium. So the forces that 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 the the very things that kind of it's go back to the analogy of gasoline prices, right? You hear them say, you always hear them say, well, the the, the cure for higher the cure for high gas prices is higher gas prices. The cure for lower gas prices is lower gas prices, right? What, what's that? What does that mean? It means that that in, in a competitive environment, things will find their equilibrium. They're too high, eventually market forces will bring them back down. If they're too low, eventually market forces will bring them back up. Well, what throws things off and leads to these problems in the business cycle are, are shocks that we cannot forecast. So, so. I know everyone likes to think that they can get get ahead of the curve and 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 say that oh I, I can call the economy in a year or two years from now then you can't the, the the best the the smartest people in the room can't do it so I don't think I can do it. There were people who I wasn't one of them, but two years ago who said the two, ten years at two percent. I mean the Fed's at zero. Nominal GDP is at fifteen percent. I mean I didn't make that call. It wasn't an easy call. With the benefit of hindsight, it was a very easy call. But obviously, very few people made it. But some people made it. Yeah, I mean, look, there, there's some luck involved, and and maybe a few people can do it consistently. But I think as a general matter, to my framework, where the economy self-regulates, it really kind of takes a shot to throw things off. Yeah. So what's it going to take to change my view? 
we get what's what I call a seven stop. A seven stop is what kind of vulnerable emerging market economies experience when capital that feeds their economy suddenly drives up. So let's say you have a vulnerable economy that they, they're, they're borrowing in dollars and they service that dollar debt. Well, when the, when the music stops and the dollars start coming in, well, then you have a crisis. That, and, and obviously we are, we are the reserve currency issuer that so we will not have a currency crisis, but we can have a crisis in other ways. So if we get a sudden stop in activity, what could cause that? War, another pandemic, an energy shock. So we, we get some big problem set that for them, that that hit, that hits the economy during a, a window of vulnerability. Then yeah, we can we can get some kind of recessionary onset or recessionary conditions. But for the most part, I think that the economy has shown itself over time to kind of self equilibrate. What about a the treasury just issuing too much coupon, too much long a long duration paper this time around? That is some people are saying is causing the term premium to go from negative to positive and you know, treasury yields to, to, to skyrocket. There are people who like you who have been bearish bonds who say, actually, I, I think this ends with like a, a market accident where the Federal Reserve has to get, get involved. Do you, you don't think it's that going to be that bad? It, it could be worse than that. I have no idea. The, the answer is the issuance and the supply issues, I think, will are, are having an impact. As you, to your point, back in July, when I went full, full bear tard on, on, on the long end, Depending on the model you, you one uses, I use the New York Fed ACM um, term premium model. Um, that risk premiums were at uh, minus ninety five basis points, and now they're looking at plus basis points. So you see basically over a hundred basis point um, increase in, in term premiums. That is crazy. We have not had um, uh, those kinds of ter- uh, positive term premiums in in I, I can't remember when. I'd have to look up my data set, but it's been probably pre-GFC since we've had, or certainly pre-2015, since we've had uh, positive term premiums, we just haven't had them. So this kind of supply, the expansion of de- deficits, I mean, hands down, it's going to have some impact. I, yeah. I can't quantify it, but yeah, I, I think that's a problem. The, the question is, how, how does how does the market digest it? I think it's more, it's not so much the level of debt or the amount of issuance, it's the rate of the issuance over time. And I think that is more of a... Of a of a, of, a, of a concern of mine. So short of knowing how the, the treasury is going to turn out the debt and the speed at which they're doing it, I don't have an answer, but that's what I would look at if I was look, looking for the answer. But you, you, as of Thursday, October 5th, you like the 10-year? The answer is yes. For a tactical play, I am long. Yeah, got it. Well, David, thanks so much for, for coming on, sharing your views. People should follow you on Twitter at PinebrookCap. And then you also got a, a Substack, Pinebrook. Yeah, that's right. Thanks. I forgot about that. Thanks for reminding me about it. Yeah, it's at pinebrookcap.com. Launched, I think, last week, last Tuesday, I launched and throwing up a lot of some interesting content there. So people should check it out. Hey, you've already uh, written a lot of articles, even though it came out a week ago. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I was pretty pro- prolific on Twitter. I'm, I'm starting to migrate some of that over. I still, I'm still active on Twitter. I threw up a post this morning in response to the initial jobless claims data. Uh, that came out. So I'm still active on Twitter. I, I plan to remain so, but a lot of my more premium content that is more research intensive will be going there. Uh, but I I think it's worth it. Look, the, the, the calls have so far been, it's not even so much the calls, which luckily they've been fine or great, but it's it's really more of like the thought process of how I, how I go about thinking about things, I think is kind of different than a lot of observers. And whether it's ultimately right or wrong, I think it's probably useful to have kind of an off the run thought process. So, so you got a one that came out a few days ago, mommy, when is Santa coming? Talking about a Santa rally. So you think that's a pretty low probability? The, the premise yeah. is that 
given where the rates complex is, given the, the concentration of earnings is in the MAG-7, given that we're entering the, the earnings season right around now-ish, the market is kind of waiting on beta, with bated breath for the earnings numbers. I think the, the rates numbers are a done deal. That's, that's done. For, for now, that's kind of a done deal. So the market is kind of waiting for the aggregate earnings and the forward guidance on those earnings to really do anything. And because we're just where we are in the calendar of the reporting period, it's just the market's saying, I'm not going to, if there is a chance for a Santa rally, it's not going to happen in the next few weeks, most likely not in October for the, just for pure calendar reasons. Got it. it has nothing to do with the, with the macro outlook, it has nothing to do with rates or earnings, just, just pure calendar. Market's going to be on hold for now until we get more, more guidance. And that's not until later in the calendar year. Guidance on earnings or guidance for the Fed on rates? Guidance on, I think guidance on earnings. I think, yeah. I think for the most part, I think consensus is that the Fed is, is done for at least, you know, this calendar year. So it's really the, and do you agree the with earnings that? question. The answer is yes. In fact, actually my inaugural note, which actually a, it was a pretty dense, I think 13, 14 pager. At, at, in my inaugural note, I argued that the Fed was, was buying some kind of inf- inflation nuclear bomb. I think the, the Fed's done for the year. It doesn't say they can't do anything later, but for this calendar year, they're done and maybe potentially for the entire cycle. Yeah. So people talk about not on your, your bingo card. I, I didn't forecast this huge and violent sell-off in long-end rates. But if you had asked me a month ago, we have this huge sell-off in rates. What happened to short-term rates or what happened to the Fed funds probabilities? I would have said, oh, it's because it's because the market priced in the Fed hiking in November and maybe in January or February 1st or whenever that meeting is uh, next year. But I, I really was not on my bingo card that the odds that the Fed would hike again would stay the same or even go down. And then you'd have a huge sell-off in rates. That has really surprised me. Yeah, I think it surprised a lot of people. Luckily, I was on the on the right side of the trade. So Hopefully, I remain on the right side of the trade with my Fed pause, do nothing, inflation continues to go down, stay long in the tenure, uh, slowing nominal growth, slowing it more disinflation. Hopefully, all those forces play into my my long tenure position. <laughs> it seems like you're pretty confident. You're pretty bullish that we won't have a recession. Confident we have a recession. I would say someone someone, uh, someone who says, "Oh, we don't have a recession." I, long stocks, not long bonds, but your long bonds. Just I guess for tactical reasons. The answer is, I would. I think you're you're probably. I don't want your viewers to misinterpret what I'm saying. I, my confidence is that we don't have a recession in the next three to six months. Yeah. And if we do have one, we're probably looking at 2025. The reason is, based on where the labor market is now, for it to really start to slow, it would take some serious deterioration in the economy, and that takes time. So let's just say things start deteriorating today. Right now we're at three to four months. Now we're looking at cuts. Cuts start in what May, June, and then that provides some stimulus. Things get priced in pretty quickly, and then and then we wait for bated breath for the economy to rebound. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. So, look, I'm not saying a, re- a recession is not going to happen. That's yeah. just part of the. Of course, it's going to happen at some point. Yeah, it's yeah. part of the cycle. Yeah. The question is when. My premise is that when is not today. It's not tomorrow. It's probably not in the next six months. And if the Fed starts cutting in six months because they see some weakness, that buys a little time. Mm-hmm. So now, now your window for a recession is gets kicked out to sometime late twenty four, early twenty five, in in again short of some kind of sudden stop the scenario that I talked about earlier. But that's how. So to to clarify for your your viewers and listeners, 
it's it's not just digital or binomial where I'm, I'm bullish and buy buy equities, yeah, sell yeah, bonds yeah. like that. It's a very much more nuanced take, and it's, it's not just about the destination. It's it's how we get there and when we get there. So my premise is that we're not going to see a recession this in the remainder of this calendar year. Likely not at the beginning of next calendar year. The cutting cycle would buy us some time. So now we're later. What do we do in the meantime? Well, again, as a trader, I trade the market in front of me. I don't want to get you know caught up in these things. For now, my position is that uh, for a variety of reasons, which I mentioned earlier, the, the tenure for me is, is a good long play. I'm not terribly excited with equities because the 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 the, the, the growth that's priced in is already optimistic. Mm-hmm. So now we're waiting on rates to come down, but we're not there yet. And so you said the, the cutting cycle will help us out a bit. So that's the used to be 200 basis points for cuts in the market. Now it's 100 basis points or something to July 2024. They think by 50 basis points, of, so two cuts. So you do you think that the the two year rate of cuts is like roughly appropriate? That there will be cuts. I mean, at some point there will be yeah, cuts, yeah. right? And I have no idea when or how much is the answer. Got it. No one does. But you know, my my premise is it's not again. It's not in the next three to six months, likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably, barring an, an accident, I would, I would agree with you. David, thanks so much for, for joining us and thanks everyone for watching. Hey, thanks for having me. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined.